Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Today on the docket, we have part two of our series on the Elan School for Troubled Teens. If you haven't checked out part one, pause this episode now and listen to that one first, or you will be more confused than me watching the last 40 minutes of the movie Inception. And as always, to take your listening experience to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. I've got photos of key players involved, plus famous alumni, and some of the twisted extracurricular activities that took place at Elan. It's like scrolling through a demented yearbook. And now let's get into part two of Elan, the schoolhouse of horrors. Last episode, we learned a little about the charismatic founder of Elan, Joe Ritchie, and we learned even less about his mysterious partner, Dr. Gerald E. Davidson. We traveled into the deep woods of Waterford, Maine to experience a day in a life as an Elan student, undergoing humiliation, torture, verbal and physical abuse fueled by electric sauce. You would think after all this, the Elan school would have been shut down immediately. But nope, it only got bigger and much more profitable. Institutions like the Elan school were being propped up by the media. Over the years, daytime TV shows that we all know on a first name basis like Sally, Maury, and Oprah, they'd feature troubled teens being sent to institutions like Elan for rehabilitation. These episodes showing the turnaround of teens basically did the marketing for the schools. And in addition, Alon did this very strategic move where they would show some of the lesser punishments to the public and keep their worst forms of abuse private. 
They allowed camera crews to document general meetings for news reports and show students being shamed with signs and embarrassing costumes. This footage was shocking and controversial, but it was depicted as being for the, quote, good of the child. Leaving viewers and potential parents sending their kids there to falsely believe that this was the worst of it and that Alon was at least being transparent with their methods. And so their enrollment grew. In addition to Alon, two campus in Waterford, Maine, Richie and Davidson open more campuses around Maine. Elon 3 becomes their largest campus near Poland Springs that first opened up in 1975. Then Elon 4 opened in Parsonsfield, Maine in an old tuberculosis sanatorium. And there were more Elon houses built in Waterford in Poland. Some were for higher paying private placement students and some were for housing the most violent disturbed students. Other campuses were for wards of the state, juvenile offenders and foster kids. That fun fact Elon got funding for from the government. You see, at the start of it all, Dr. Gerald E. Davidson used his hashtag influence to lobby Congress for insurance funding to send troubled teens to institutions like Elon. Davidson also used his high-powered connections to recruit troubled kids from wealthy families who needed a convenient, discreet way to deal with their misbehaving children. Elon was marketed as the Rolls-Royce of adolescent treatment centers. They would even transport some students via private jet to the school. Even though Dr. Gerald Davidson was drawing a lot of business to the school, he was always careful to keep a physical distance. Davidson stayed mostly in Massachusetts near Harvard and Mass General. He devised psychological behavioral curriculum for Elon and would receive updates on the school from afar. This is a smart strategy, perhaps giving him plausible deniability of any abuse or criminal activity happening on the campuses. Because after all, it's Joe Ritchie who was the hands-on man in charge of the day-to-day operations at Elon. So let's check in on him. Ritchie was also doing some wheeling and dealing with powerful entities on the state level. He worked out arrangements where kids facing juvie were given the option to go to Elon instead. Plus again, many foster kids and wards of the state ended up at Elon. There are some allegations of kickbacks, though I never found any criminal charges, just lots and lots of rumors. The idea isn't that far-fetched. We've seen examples of cash-for-kids, corruption cases, judges sending children to for-profit prisons and institutions like that famous case in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. So I wouldn't be completely shocked if it turned out Joe had been involved in this type of scheme. There was also a former Secretary of State and State Senator named William Diamond, and he is now an outspoken advocate against child abuse. However, he also served as the Elon School's Director of Governmental Relations. Although Diamond claims he had no idea of any of these abuses that were going on and hardly ever visited the campuses. Diamond wasn't the only one with blinders on. State of Maine officials made at least 11 trips to the school to do wellness checks after claims of alleged abuse, but they never found anything. Maybe because they would announce their inspections well in advance. 
And so, Elan was free to operate with impunity for over four decades and collect up to $60,000 annually for each student enrolled. Joe Ritchie and his wife Sherry were millionaires before they even turned 30. And Joe loved flaunting his wealth, cruising around the back roads of rural Maine in his shiny new Mercedes, then later a Bentley. But Joe's wife Sherry was having a hard go of things. Joe wasn't the best husband. Some former students and staff claimed that he would verbally abuse Sherry at the general meetings, and Joe would also seek out the most attractive young ladies at Elan and hire them to babysit his children. In one incident, an Elan student-turned-babysitter made Joe and Sherry's son pretend to be a cat and insist he sit on her lap while she burnt him with a lit cigarette. Sherry was understandably outraged. Joe brushed it off. He was always crossing the line with students and staff. He would throw these all-night ragers at the school, fueled by booze and coke, and Joe Ritchie's most loyal staff members would get special treatment. There are accounts of him lending cash or helping workers put down payments on a house. Again, these are often young, former students of Joe's turned employees with little education and skills. They came to rely on Joe, and he paid for their loyalty. They knew if they crossed Joe, they'd be cut off, fired, and SOL. After years of witnessing this debauchery, Sherry suffers from a nervous breakdown and files for divorce. Gee, I wonder why. But before the divorce settlement is complete, Joe purchases a rundown harness racetrack in Maine called Scarborough Downs. Dr. Gerald Davidson becomes a part owner of the track as well, and Joe tries to schmooze Sherry into co-owning the track with him, but she sees this as a ploy to tie up money and assets to the track that she would otherwise be entitled to in a divorce settlement. And here's where we get to the part of the story I'm going to call Joe Ritchie Loves a Lawsuit. And you guys, there are some things about to go down that are going to make me... <gasps> Side with Joe. I know, I'm shocked too. According to an article in the Hartford Courant, at some point in the early 70s, Richie sues the Maine Principals Association, claiming that the league tried to block his African-American Elan students from participating in high school sports because Richie says, quote, they thought every one of them was a ringer, end quote. Then fast forward to the early 80s, Joe Ritchie and Gerald Davidson had just recently purchased the Scarborough Downs racetrack, and they have a line of credit with Key Bank for like half a mil. When seemingly out of nowhere, Key Bank freezes their account. You see, the bank was getting tips from the FBI that Joe was involved with the mafia and alleged that he had a hand in the murder of Michael J., a.k.a. Little Joe Napolitano. However, there's no direct evidence showing that Joe had ties to organized crime or a hand in the murder of Little Joe. So in 1987, Richie successfully sues Key Bank for discrimination for over $10 million. At this time, it was the largest civil settlement in the state of Maine. 
Joe Ritchie had successfully proven the case that Key Bank and the FBI had made unjust assumptions about him just because he was Italian. I know it seems preposterous now, but back in the day, this was a thing. Throughout the 1800s and into the first half of the 20th century here in the U.S., immigrants who were Italian slash Roman Catholic were looked down on by those of Northern European descent and Protestant. Many Italian immigrants worked some of the lowest wage jobs and were even targeted by the KKK. Later on, thanks to movies like The Godfather, there was pervasive stereotyping in the media leaving many to assume that all Italians were connected to the mafia and overall a moral behavior. Growing up half Italian myself, I remember being scandalizzato as a kid reading Anne of Green Gables when young redheaded Anne Shirley buys some hair dye from an Italian peddler to turn her hair brunette. The dye instead turns her hair green. And her adoptive mother, Marilla Cuthbert, scolds Anne, saying, And Shirley, how often have I told you never to let one of those Italians into the house? I don't believe in encouraging them to come around at all. Yeah, I didn't care much for Marilla at that point, but after that shady comment, I despised her. Oh, you don't want an Italian person around you, Marilla? Well, have fun eating your dry baking powder biscuits, you crusty old bag. May you never experience the joy of that perfectly baked garlic rosemary focaccia that is both chewy and crispy, drizzled with cold-pressed olive oil and topped with sun-ripened San Marzano tomatoes. Is anyone else starving right now? Anyway, although I despise Joe Ritchie even more than Marilla Cuthbert, reluctantly, I have to take Joe Ritchie's side on the Key Bank case. That was some major baloney. But after Joe Ritchie gets his first taste of victory, you will start to see a pattern emerge where he plays the victim, claiming that anyone publicly criticizing him and the Elan school, they were just taking cheap shots at him because he was Italian. In addition to those lawsuits, Joe found himself on the other side of the courtroom when he was a defendant in three sexual harassment lawsuits and one for threatening to kill a female employee. Wow, what a charmer. He loses one and settles the others, but whatever. No skin off his mortadella. Then, Joe Ritchie runs for governor in 1986. It was a five-way race, and he came in dead last. Joe blamed his loss on being Italian. You guys, the national media gives this bozo credence by giving him airtime on 60 Minutes to tell his sob story. Describing being crucified and dehumanized, Joe gazes out the window with a crestfallen look on his face. Uh. Oh, sorry, my eyes got stuck mid-roll in the back of my head. And on top of all this, guess what? Joe was the victim, once again, of another suspicious fire. You may remember in part one that the first Elon School campus burnt down under mysterious circumstances, and now the clubhouse at Scarborough Downs Racetrack burned down, an arson case that was never solved. At this point, Dr. Gerald Davidson has become disillusioned with Joe, and he leaves the school in 1991, and Dr. Davidson dies later that year. Joe Ritchie runs for governor again in 1998. And again, he's hit with more bad press. 
But this time, it's for his involvement in the murder investigation against former Elan student Michael Skakel. So let's hop back to 1975. It's the night before Halloween, known as Mischief Night, in an uber-wealthy Greenwich, Connecticut neighborhood. A 15-year-old girl named Martha Moxley is murdered in the woods near her home. Her body was found next to pieces of a broken golf club. She had been bludgeoned and stabbed to death with the club. There were a few initial suspects, including brothers Thomas and Michael Skakel, who happened to be the nephews to Robert F. Kennedy and Ethel Skakel Kennedy. Despite being suspected, neither brother was initially charged for the murder of Martha Moxley. I'm sure this had nothing to do with this family's wealth and influence. The Kennedys were obviously a powerful political family, but the Skakels were mega, mega rich. Grandfather George was the founder of Great Lakes Carbon Corporation, a coal company that was one of the largest and wealthiest privately held corporations in the United States. The family was able to protect Thomas and Michael from being implicated in this murder, keeping their names out of the public eye, for a while anyway. Then three years after the Moxley murder, Michael Skakel is arrested for drunk driving. His parents whisk him away to the Elan school hidden deep in the Maine woods. This is when we get into some very gray areas of conflicting accounts. Accounts that later come out in the year 2000 during Michael Skakel's murder trial. Some students and staff at Elan claimed that Joe Ritchie fed them private personal details of Michael Skakel being suspected in the murder of Martha Moxley. And further, they were encouraged to confront and shame Michael about this during general meetings. Michael Skakel reportedly ran away twice from the school and was subjected to the ring. In between rounds of fighting fellow students, he started to change his answer to the question, who killed Martha Moxley, from, I don't know, to, I don't remember. Former classmates also say they witnessed Skakel being forced to wear a chicken suit for being a coward, and also wear a sign that said, confront me about the murder of Martha Moxley. Another former Elan student named John Higgins testified that Michael confessed to murdering Martha Moxley to him while they were alone on night watch guard duty, saying that Michael had admitted to taking the golf club out of the bag and was running through the woods and then had a blackout. John Higgins stated that Michael Skakel said he didn't know if he did it. He couldn't remember if he did it. Joe Ritchie, on the other hand, insisted that he never heard Michael confess to the murder and that these people coming for now were lying. They were just in it for the potential reward money. Skakel ends up being found guilty of murder and sentenced to 20 to life. But there is way, way, way more to this case in trial. As of 2023, there are still pending lawsuits and appeals in this case. So I have a whole episode about the Martha Moxley murder coming up in the future, where you will decide whether or not Michael Skakel did it and whether or not you think he got a fair trial. So keep your ears peeled for that one. Getting back to Joe Ritchie, when he ran for governor the second time, the investigation into the cold case of Martha Moxley was in the media and thus putting Elan into the spotlight. At this time, there were chat rooms and internet forums popping up where Elan students were finally getting the chance to connect with one another and swap stories. 
You see, before the average American had access to the Internet's superhighway, these former Elan students were sent back home to many parents who didn't believe them. I mean, imagine telling your folks you were forced to wear a pink bunny costume and your shoelaces were taken away and you had garbage feces slurry called electric sauce dumped on your head and that you had to fight fellow students in the ring. These claims could sound completely outlandish or grossly exaggerated. And if your folks did look into it, it was the school's word against yours. But now... Thanks to the internet, survivors were finding each other online and their numbers were growing. Richie lost the governor's race again. He defected all the bad press again. And he denounced the chatter coming from the Elon survivors message boards, saying the claims were nonsense and touting Elon's, quote, high success rate. In the year 2000, Joe Richie marries his second wife, Sharon Terry a former secretary of Elan, which, yeah, totally checks out. And then six months later, Joe Ritchie dies of cancer. He dies a multimillionaire, never facing any criminal charges for the abuse at Elan. His new wife, Sherry Terry, continued the school until it closed in 2011, you guys. And even more astounding, this school didn't close because of any criminal investigations. It closed due to low enrollment. Sharon Terry blamed the negative online gossip for ruining the school's reputation. And that was the end of Elan. There are still mysteries surrounding the school. The startup funding, Gerald Davidson's origins, was Elan initially created to gather info for the CIA? Were there kickbacks to state employees in exchange for students? Did Michael Skakel actually confess to murder? Plus, more accounts of physical and sexual abuse continuing to come out. There are also former students saying that Elan saved their lives. My knee-jerk thought is to assume they were brainwashed. But the only people who really know are the people who were inside those walls of the Elan school. Some former students, especially in the later years, say their experience was positive. But the overwhelming majority of accounts coming out are horrendous. I'm going to leave you with one last story of a survivor. Stephen Smith was a ward of the state at age six. As a young teen, he gets into trouble and is given the choice to go to a lawn or juvie. He is told that a lawn would be more like a summer camp for him. So that's where he goes. While there, Stephen is physically and sexually abused, humiliated and tortured. He continued to suffer from mental health issues and eventually ends up in a maximum security prison. Later on, Stephen Smith is interviewed by author Maura Curley, who wrote an unauthorized biography of Joe Ritchie titled Duck in a Raincoat, published back in 2012. Stephen tells Maura that Elan was far, far worse than the maximum security prison. He acknowledges that, yes, prison is rough at times, but, quote, here I get a chance for some solitude, to read, and I'm going to college. I've also gotten to learn woodworking and make some money in the prison store. At Elan, there was nothing positive. It was pure hell. A better education in a prison than at a school that cost as much as an Ivy League university. A school that made people millions while destroying young lives. 
criminal abuses that were sanctioned, concealed, and controlled by a powerful group and carried out for decades. Now, I may have not gone to a big, fancy, expensive school, but that sounds an awful lot like organized crime to me. Oh man, we did it. That was Alon, everybody. Check out the last podcast on the left, episodes 517 to 519, if you want a further five-hour deep dive into the Elon school and the troubled teen industry. I also want to give a shout out to this amazing webcomic being produced called Joe vs. Elon School, a true cult classic. You can see pages on the site, Elon.school. It's created by a former survivor of the Elon School. And finally, there is a documentary out called The Last Stop, where you can hear directly from survivors of Elon. As of this recording, that documentary is available for free to stream on Amazon Prime. Again, that's called The Last Stop. And also a quick update, Marilla Cuthbert and I squashed our beef. She came over, we drank some raspberry cordials, hashed it out and swapped fruit tart recipes. And now we're totally chill, fam. I have to give you some happy ending because this is a rough ride. But I thank you so much for listening. You can tell me what you think. Email me directly at Angela at the truecrimefeed.com or join the official True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned until after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Oh my gosh, you guys, my podcast queue runneth over this week. There are so many good ones out right now. I have a few I'm putting on the shelf so I can binge listen all at once. I'm interested in the Pink Panther story about jewel thieves and the cover-up at Columbia University story. Both are trending right now. There's also an awesome new show called Magnificent Jerk about this gal discovering that a terrible movie starring Rob Lowe as a drug addict trying to escape his gangsta lifestyle is all loosely based on her uncle, right? It's like a weird disco fever dream. And there are some shows that I actually think make a better binge listen all at once because it's so much easier to keep track of the plot versus when you're waiting a week in between. I have listened to the first episodes of The Estate and Gallery of Lies, both excellent shows, but I'm going to hold off listening until all of the episodes of those drop. Believable, the Coco Bertheman story, they also just had another good episode this week. She would be back on my ranking if it wasn't such a podcast feast out there right now. There are some slightly tastier choices on the buffet line. So without further ado, let's get to the ranking. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Betrayal on the Bayou. Here's a synopsis from the show page. 
For almost two decades, DEA Special Agent Chad Scott ruled the streets just north of New Orleans. He controlled a network of snitches by convincing people he arrested to work for him as informants. Chad would stop at nothing to put drug dealers behind bars. His successes won awards at the DEA, but his willingness to bend the rules earned him a terrifying reputation on the streets. Some called him the Golden Boy. Others called him White Devil. Investigators go over his career with a fine-tooth comb, asking the question, is Chad Scott the greatest DEA agent in the South, or is he a criminal? All right, just wrapped up the last episode of the season. And now that all the episodes are out, I highly recommend this show as a binge listen. We hear the court's case against Chad and examine how it matches up against the court of public opinion. I walk away feeling like the system of DEAs and their informants makes this whole tragic situation inevitable. Not always my favorite story to tune into, a lot of harsh realities that made me feel helpless, but I think it's an important lesson. And I'm proud that I remain loyal to Betrayal on the Bayou. At the number two spot, we have Over My Dead Body. Here's a rundown from the show page. When Mike Williams vanishes on a hunting trip, the authorities presume he was eaten by alligators. But one woman begins to suspect the true predators may look much closer to home. It sets her on a tireless crusade to uncover what really happened to Mike. A story about an obsessive love affair, a scandalous secret, and a mother's battle for justice. And again, this was the last episode of the season, and good lord, it delivers. So many answers. But sadly, a lot of answers I was dreading to hear. I left the series with mixed emotions about the outcome, but firm in my conviction that Over My Dead Body Season 4 Gone Hunting was an outstanding listen. And at the number one spot, we have... The Dream Season 3. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Past seasons of this award-winning investigative podcast looked into pyramid schemes and the world of wellness. This season, we're getting to know the gurus and life coaches who claim to know the secret to living our best lives. Is it all in our mindset or our privilege or are we all under a spell? The dream is back, baby. I'm so excited. Season one is one of my all-time favorites. Season two, I thought was a little uneven, partially because I had knee-jerk emotional disagreements with a lot of the ideas she was critiquing, but it made me examine my own relationship with the wellness industry and to be a more discerning consumer. Even when I don't always agree with a show, I like being pushed. I like being challenged. It makes me feel stronger in my reasons why. Another reason I love The Dream is because host Jane Marie is an open book. She throws her personal life fully into the story, sometimes to the point where I feel guilty for listening, like I'm overhearing a very private, intense therapy session. Lucky for her, she's a very interesting person. She's wicked cool looking, and her partner in business and romance, Dan Colucci, is as equally captivating. Here is a caveat for season three, though. I honestly don't think the average person will enjoy this season of The Dream if they haven't heard the first two seasons. 
Jane Marie is such a starring character in her own show. It's going to feel weird if you haven't spent time getting to know her. Like jumping into The Office season four after Jim and Pam got together. Oops, sorry for spoiling that. I think you really need to hear her evolution because the second episode of season three, we see Jane Marie in a really rough spot. She usually approaches the topics she's covering confidently full of snark, but this time she's examining the wild world of the life coach guru industry while also earnestly looking for help. I can't wait to go on this journey with Jane Marie on The Dream. Now for my miss of the week. We have Crawl Space. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Crawl Space is where crime meets culture. Hosts Lance and Tim anchor interesting conversations about unsolved murders, serial killers, cold cases, and paranormal activity. Crawl Space goes beyond entertainment and digs deeper to tell stories of crimes, vanished people, and injustices. Guests include survivors, authors, journalists, podcasters, advocates, and educators. This show is hosted by Lance and Tim from the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I was excited about it because they have some fairly recognizable names from the true crime world on this show. I wanted to learn more about FBI informants, so I tuned into the episode with that Intercept journalist Trevor Aronson from the Alphabet Boys podcast, but this was a typical run-of-the-mill, slightly boring interview. I think I would have been totally lost if I hadn't been somewhat familiar with Aronson's previous work because they kept referencing his podcast and articles without giving full context. I skipped around and searched for some other interesting conversations. The format was either way too loose and informal or it felt like a dry college lecture. Like back when I was in college during my 8 a.m. art history classes, we were in those comfy for a college student cushioned auditorium seats. The room was dark, except for the projection screen. The teacher sounded like Ben Stein with a hangover. And I swear half the time we were analyzing oil paintings depicting the Austro-Prussian War. Like, what are we doing here, guys? Crawl Space gives me those same vibes. As a broad category, this should be fascinating. And they're either spending way too much time on boring topics or just clowning off. I'm sure there are a handful of decent episodes of Crawl Space, all dependent on the guests to deliver the goods because the hosts aren't bringing it and I don't have the patience to sort through this hot mess of an attic. So for now, I'm sending Crawl Space down my podcast queue trapdoor. But I kind of don't feel bad because I think they will be comfortable down there. Find out next week if the dream will stay in the number one spot as the series continues or if a new show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and which show fell through your podcast queue trapdoor. I'll meet you here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week 
and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation, especially Instagram, where I am making some dank memes for every episode. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.